I am Anthony Fowler. I'm Will Howell. And I'm Viola Giuda. And this is not another politics podcast. So, you know, we are looking forward to a lot of things happening this summer, fun stuff, but also some serious stuff, some stuff related to politics and and huge stakes. Um, so one of the things I'm looking forward to is uh, the decision of the Supreme Court regarding the affirmative action and, and the cases of university acceptance, college acceptance at Harvard. Even though this case is very narrow, it's only about one place, it, it's going to have very large repercussions for race in America. So I was thinking about it. Do we study race in political science? What, what do we study? What, do we, what are the sort of big literatures that we can tap into to, to get a little bit better understanding of what political scientists know about race? There are big literatures. I mean, befitting the importance of the topic, there's one literature that's caught a lot of attention, in particular, that's thinking about public opinion. Really, up until the 1950s, 60s, early 70s, race and racism had a particular valence. It was rooted in biological assessments of other groups. Most of this literature is focusing on the views of whites. We're informed by affective considerations. That is, it was about one's how much one likes or dislikes particular groups, and people would speak plainly about their likes and dislikes, and that would directly affect and inform their policy opinions. And then in the 1970s, a couple of political scientists, Don Kinder at the University of Michigan and David Sears at UCLA, observed that the willingness of people to express this kind of anti-black affect in biological terms and sort of straightforward, crude terms was declining. But in its place, there arose a, a new racism, what they would call uh, a symbolic racism, sometimes called racial resentment. And this new racism was sort of went underground in that people were not speaking so plainly about their bigotry. They weren't expressing it in such crude and obvious terms. But this new racism joined forces with traditional American values, foremost among them being individualism. And so what they built is a series of measures wherein they ask questions like, it's really a matter of some people not trying hard enough. If blacks would only try harder, they could be just as well off as whites. That's a, a standard measure in the full battery of questions that are asked in what's often thought of as a, as a racial resentment scale. And depending upon how you respond to that, there's an invitation to people to respond to it in ways that are, what, racially conservative or racially liberal or high on the racial resentment scale, which they then went on to show does an incredible job of predicting your policy attitudes in every conceivable policy domain, not just in matters involving directly involving matters of race, but in all matters of domestic policy and even in foreign policy, which they took as evidence of just how significant race and racism is in American politics. Um, now I'm going on. Like, I think it's worth... Um, taking stock of what the, the sort of the trajectory of this literature is. Let me just say one, one or two more things, which is that there then was a big debate in the late 90s and early knots about what the meaning of this scale is. Is it capturing racism, a new form of racism, or is it just expressing debates about how liberal or conservative people are? It's tapping into people's ideology, and can we distinguish between these two things? And then there have been new scholars who've come on to play, who come on board, and who's talked about white identity as being an important feature of contemporary American politics, as measured through survey research. But there's this other piece, which I think is worth considering, is that just because you show that there's a correlation between a measure, 
call it racial resentment, call it a measure of symbolic racism, call it whatever you want, and policy attitudes. It's not altogether clear what is driving the effect, what the source of the variation is that we want to ascribe a kind of a label to when we want to say that racism or racial um, is, is alive and well in shaping American attitudes. So that's by way of background, right? This big, big literature, literatures, plural, just in this domain on public opinion research that sets up a paper uh, who, whose authors you, you engaged with, Anthony, that is forthcoming at the QJPS. Can you tell us a little bit about it? I spoke with Tim Ryan from the University of North Carolina, and he has written this paper with Alexander Agajanian, John Kerry, and Yusaku Ryuchi. Um, and the four of them have done this reassessment of this, what you, the racial resentment scale, these common survey questions you just described that are, that are supposed to measure essentially racism, but measure, but measure it in a subtler way to get a sense of, do people have this underlying latent racial resentment? And one of the, you know, one of the interesting things they did in the paper is they developed their own, uh, their own independent way of trying to assess the extent to which people favor or disfavor different racial groups. And then they compared their results to what you get, what you find when you ask these racial resentment questions. And the results are pretty interesting and pretty striking and probably somewhat controversial in the field of political science. Um, and we had, a really, we had a really interesting conversation about it. Tim, thank you so much for, for doing this. It's great to, uh, it's great to talk to you. Um, one of the innovative parts of this paper is, is a new and I think pretty interesting way of trying to detect the extent to which people favor or disfavor members of different racial groups. What's the what's the strategy? This is, of course, a vexing change. There's lots of people who are trying to measure things like racial animosity, and there's lots of conflict over that. What, what's the innovation used here? Sure. Well, we use something called a conjoint experiment, what I think is a pretty innovative application of a conjoint experiment. The basic idea is that you put people in a situation where they have to make judgments, oftentimes about people. It doesn't need to be in like a hiring context, but it often is. And that's what we do. People review profiles for possible like applicants for a position or in another example, possible immigrants who are coming into the country. And you use a computer to randomly assign how these people are described, randomly assign a number of different attributes about them. And the virtue of, of um, randomly assigning how they are described in a number of different ways all simultaneously is that you can examine sort of the effect of each of those things that you're manipulating on one hand, and also people who are the people who are making the judgments, your, your survey respondents, kind of have plausible deniability where in any particular choice they make, it's not clear what the reason for it was. So they always, you can, you can detect something like racial prejudice is where we're going in this conversation, but no one choice that a respondent made could be pinned down to be identified as like one that was motivated by their own racial attitudes. In our case, we say there's a study of how people make um, choices about who's going to hold important positions in society. And we present them with 10 pairs of applicants and we ask them, for each of these two applicants that you're reviewing, who do you think is a stronger applicant? Who should move on to the next round of consideration? And they learn eight little pieces of information about each of these applicants they are reviewing. They learn how old they are, their age and years. They learn how many years of relevant job experience they have. They learn about the quality of the applicant's writing sample, about the quality of the references, the quality of their communication skills. They learn about their gender. They learn where they got their graduate degree from, and importantly for our purposes, they learn about the applicant's race. They are either white, Asian, Hispanic, or black. 
Okay, interesting. So, so you have all these comparisons. You know, people, regular survey respondents are saying, okay, this is I would prefer candidate two versus candidate one in this scenario, and you have them do several of these. And then how how do you take that data and then measure the extent to which people seem to have any kind of racial favoring or disfavoring? It's quite simple, actually. And that's one nice thing about conjoint experiment is that the analysis of it doesn't need to be simple, but certainly can be simple at a first blush. So in our case, people are evaluating pairs of applicants. In each pair, it has just happens to be the case that we set it up so that one applicant is white and one applicant is not white. Everything else is randomly assigned with kind of equal probability. Any deviation from a benchmark of 50% can be um, taken as some kind of evidence of, of a bias. So for instance, if we were to learn among the black applicants that people were presented with that they were chosen 55% of the time or something like that, that would be evidence of a minor or modest racial bias, about five percentage points in the favor of black applicants. And you can do that for anything in the study. You can look at what graduate school they went to and any deviation from um, sort of even selection can be adduced as evidence of a kind of bias. And so, so can you tell us a little bit, just at the high level, what kinds of patterns do you find when you, when you, when you implement this instrument? So you're, you're including uh, white Americans in the, in the study. What kinds of prejudices do white Americans have when they're deciding who they want to be their city manager? Sure, yeah. And thanks for mentioning that it's a city manager because that's sort of the core part of the experiment that we focus on in the paper. We say, imagine that these people are applying to be a city manager, someone who's going to uh, decide who's going, to, like how money is going to be spent in a city, make important political decisions. And when we look at that circumstance, we find that Asian applicants to be a city manager are chosen 47.9% of the time. Um, and remember that 50% is a very meaningful benchmark here. Black applicants, 53.1% of the time, Hispanic, 48.9% of the time, and white applicants, 50.5% of the time. And for those last two, I should say, we can do a statistical test to see if they're significantly distinguishable from that benchmark of 50%. And the last two I said are not statistically distinguishable. The first two I said are statistically distinguishable. Mm -hmm. And just to be clear, in this study, you're always comparing Asian or Hispanic or Black candidates against white candidates. And then it's white versus some, you know, the average of the other three, basically. That's what we're, that's what we're talking about. I mean, I mean, maybe that sounds like not a big discrepancy, like 53 versus 47%. Maybe that sounds like not a lot of racial prejudice, uh, but, you know, but they are given lots of other information. And we'd like to think that we're not considering race at all when we're deciding who should be city manager. We're thinking about who would be a good city manager. And, and they're given information about their experience and other aspects of their application, where's their graduate degree from, and so forth. So do you have a sense of how the racial information compares to the other information that you gave respondents? Yeah, it's it's small relative to the other um, information we gave respondents. Things like the quality of their writing sample, quality of their references, that stuff has much larger effects than race does, which on one hand is kind of comforting, I guess. But that's not to discount that it's important <laughs> that um, uh, there are racial biases that apply to these these groups. They may seem modest in the sense that the departures from 50% are not all that big. But then again, I really don't want to sell it short because a big idea, like in the study of racial politics, is structural and accumulated racism that, yes, if you look at any one circumstance, maybe the effect of race is not all that big, but these things build on each other and can really cumulatively um, amount to really changing the trajectory of a person's life. So, so at the high level, you're finding that on average, white Americans actually exhibit, you know, exhibit some, you know, racial prejudice against Asians relative to white. So they prefer the white, all else equal, they prefer the white candidate over the, over the Asian candidate. 
And it goes the other direction for, for black candidates. They actually prefer the black candidate over the white candidate. Were you, were you surprised by those, those two findings? I will be honest, and we document this via a pre-registration, that we went into the study with a little bit of a hunch that we might see something like that. And that hunch comes from signs in the racial politics literature that discriminated against minorities or minority groups that are perceived as discriminated against is a meaningful political force. And there's a couple of papers that talk about this in various ways. One of the most important ones is Jennifer Chudy. She actually has two of them. Capturing the idea that there's a sense of white collective guilt that might orient people to um, support minority groups. And moreover, you can see that play out in some big political events that we've witnessed in recent years. So one general kind of question I think people would raise is, so to what extent should we, should we buy this general result that there seems to be, on average, a favoring of, of black versus white candidates among white Americans. And one concern you might have is something like social desirability bias, that I know you guys, you're a bunch of professors and you're looking for evidence of racism and I don't want to look like I'm racist. You didn't tell me the study was about racism, but I can look at it and I can see race is one of the first things you told me about. And so I want to make sure I'm not, don't look racist. And I'm going to say, oh, sure, I'm going to pick, make sure I pick the black candidate, maybe a little more than I really would in some kind of real world scenario. Is that a reasonable concern? And, and what kinds of things did you do to mitigate those concerns? I think it's a reasonable concern. I think social desirability is always a fair question to, to raise. I think studies that are immune to thinking about that kind of concern are few and far between. In our case, we do, I think, as much as we reasonably can do to try to neutralize those concerns. The nature of a conjuring task is one that has been shown in a couple different ways to attenuate social desirability bias, with the biggest reason for it being that in any choice that you might make, there are so many different rationales that could explain why you made that choice. It, you don't have to acknowledge that you chose one candidate because of their race. You can always point to you know, the, some other aspect of their credentials that might explain that, that choice is one thing. The second thing is when it comes to how we describe the task, we worked as hard as we could to try to put race into the background. And we did a couple of things to make that work the best way we could. One thing we did was all the um, questions about race are going to be really vocal, like we're going to talk in a second about our measures of racial attitudes. They happened in a survey that took place several weeks before the judgment task that we've um, spoken about. So when we ask people a bunch of questions about their stereotypes and their racial attitudes, that exists on a separate survey. A couple of weeks goes by. Then they get invited to a new survey, ostensibly unrelated. There's no mention of the previous survey. And they come into this and they are just told, you're going to do this task about how people make judgments about important roles in, in society. And the third thing I'll mention is when it comes to social desirability pressures, what is the context in which I'm measuring someone's behavior? How sort of private is it? The more private it is, the less I'm worried about social desirability pressures. And sitting on your computer, potentially in a private place, taking a survey is a reasonably private context. That doesn't mean that social desirability pressures don't exist, but if they exist there, then I would think they would probably exist even more in some of the behaviors that we're trying to facsimilate. Things like sitting around a conference table with your colleagues, deciding who you're going to hire. And like, like we said, you're analyzing data where people are thinking about who they would hire to be city manager. Does it matter if, if this is a political decision versus some other kind of hiring decision or personal decision? Do you have anything, any evidence on that? We do. So there's a whole other component to this experiment where they could have been randomly assigned to be placed in a different context, one where they are making choices about who's going to be hired not to be a city manager, but to be a biology professor at a public university, a position that also has some sort of status to it, something that has maybe a comparable salary to being um, a city manager. 
but one where you don't have the political influence that you might otherwise have. Um, we see the same basic pattern, but they do shrink a little bit, but it's really not that big a difference. For all the four racial groups, they all become not statistically distinguishable from the 50% benchmark. So things shrink a little bit, but not really enough to, to say a whole lot about. So the, the big framing of the paper is that you are offering some independent evaluation of this racial resentment scale. So when political scientists want to measure something like racial animosity, the most commonly used tool is this racial resentment scale. What is the racial resentment scale and, and how is it usually interpreted and used by political scientists? So it goes back really to the 70s, if not even the 60s. A number of researchers came up with these questions that have uh, now been used for decades. At the time, they seemed sort of subtle. It's kind of interesting to read them now because with our new kind of sociology of race, our new mores about race, they don't seem as subtle today as they once did. In fact, when I show these questions to undergrads and when I put them on surveys, they object to them in, in for their sort of like the racist or the racial connotations of the questions themselves in a way that, you know, they're once construed to be these very clever, subtle measures. So I'll just read one or two of these to you <laughs> for the context. So the most famous one is this. You have to agree or disagree with the following statement. The statement is Irish, Italians, Jews, and many other minorities overcame prejudice and worked their way up. Blacks should do the same without any special favors. If blacks would only try harder, then they could be just as well off as whites. And again, if you agree with that, then you're um, considered to be a little bit more racist than if you disagree with that. And the way this stuff is described in the public opinion literature, going way back, with a few exceptions, I, don't want, to, I want to be clear that there's a couple people who have been more nuanced than this, but it really is considered a, what I'll call a one-sided measure of racism, where if you are at the very bottom of the scale, um, you are not racist, and if you, the more higher up you go, the more racist we expect you to be. That is the kind of terminology that surrounds how it is described and how results that invoke it are described in the public opinion literature going back decades with a few exceptions. I think that the proponents of the scale would say that they validated it in lots of ways. Like it, it really is, it's correlated with lots of other attitudes and lots of real world behaviors that you might care about. But your, but your point in this paper is that it might be telling us something about differences in racial attitudes, but it's not telling us anything about sort of where the, where the mean is and so forth. So one of your ideas is let's, let's use the instrument that you just described using the survey conjoints, compare it to the racial resentment scale and just see where, where people line up. So can you tell us a little about those, those results and analyses? What we do, what we find when we look at that, and I think it pushes against the way the scale is usually thought about and described, we find that the vast majority of its predictive influence um, comes from its ability to identify people who favor black Americans. In the it's in the case of a black applicant versus a, a white applicant. So on the high end of the racial resentment scale, we see a small but not statistically significant trend where the people who are high in that scale are slightly less likely to select a black applicant, but the people at the low end of it are quite a bit more likely to select a black applicant, quite a bit more likely than 50%. They're up to about 50, uh, 56% at the, the bottom third of the scale. Um, and that is a statistically significant difference. And so, you know, we've got to get nuanced here. Like, is that consistent with this scale being a measure of, of racial attitudes? Yes, absolutely. Is it a measure of racism? Well, I think that has the opportunity to be misleading because to me, that sort of leads my brain to think that it's a, it's a way to capture people who are discriminating against black Americans. 
And maybe there's some context where it is, but in the context that we did, it's really more capturing people who are discriminating in favor of black Americans. A big part of it does seem to be some preference for, for black over white people. Is that, is, that a fair, is that a fair conclusion? Or I think it's going in a fair direction. I think that they probably have concern about racial inequality in society, have motivation to correct that, to enact policies and to make judgments that push against that. And we see that play out in a preference at the margin to choose like a black candidate over a white candidate. So in my mind, one of the most interesting results in the paper is what we find for Asian Americans. And maybe there's a couple ways to think about it, but people at the low end of the racial resentment scale have no favoritism or disfavoritism of Asian American applicants. They neither favor nor disfavor them. People at the high end of the racial resentment scale disfavor them. They actually penalize them probably even more than the black applicants. And I thought that was kind of interesting. And like when I squint at the relevant figure, the narrative that sort of I hear in my head is people who are, are sort of like at the low end of the racial resentment scale, sort of racially progressive, they aren't motivated to support Asian Americans because they don't see them as a discriminated against minority in the same way that they see blacks. So that Asian Americans sort of lose out in that sense. They don't get the benefit of, of getting a preference from people low in racial resentment. And people at the high end of the racial resentment scale don't necessarily, they're not sort of trying to reconcile their, their individualist values against what they understand to be broad social norms that, um, of social equality and that we need to um, work hard to support racial minorities. And so they're actually more willing to discriminate against the Asian American group. And so that, like the Asian Americans, they sort of lose out in two ways. Um, and that results in them getting the, um, the lowest sort of um, score. Um, they're, they're the least selected racial group in the experiment. Okay, so let's, let's pause on this for a second, because th this is now an even more striking result. We have the previous striking result that on average in your survey, white Americans don't seem to be discriminating against black Americans. In fact, if anything, it goes the other direction. And now you're saying something even stronger, which is that even among the subset of people who score the highest on this racial resentment scale, they're the ones that are willing to answer those questions in the more potentially racist direction, even still don't, don't seem to show a strong, you know, any strong discrimination, strong favoring or disfavoring of black Americans. Is that a surprising result to you that, that even among that high, that highest tercile, they're kind of 50-50 in terms of picking black versus white city managers? I was a little surprised that we didn't see a little bit more disfavoring on the high end of the scale. I want to be cautious about running too far with that result. I think, um, you know, there's ways that uh, someone could be skeptical about how well that result will transport to um, to other contexts. One where race is signaled in a more powerful way than just a word on your screen, just describing a person with one word, black, um, white, Asian, or whatever. There are circumstances where that might sort of come with a lot more connotation about what that person is like. Um, there are a lot of sort of things that are that race is a proxy for. And so I don't want to, you know, be extravagant and say that I, I would expect exactly the same thing in all other circumstances. Um, but yeah, I was a little surprised that it was um, that there was no statistically significant discrimination against black Americans at the top end of that racial resentment scale. If we were being careless, we could say, actually, it's the people who, who score lowest on this racial resentment scale that appear to be the most racist in the sense that they're the most willing to discriminate on the basis of race. Is that is that unfair to say? I wouldn't use the word racist because um, that you know that comes with a lot of connotations. But I would say that it's um, they do the most discriminating on the basis of race. Maybe that's a, a distinction without difference. But um, it's um, that's what we saw in the study. Yeah. Okay. So so I mean so this is a really interesting top line result. Presumably this has lots of implications. I mean there are lots of studies on racial resentment out there 
Does this change the way that you think about any of those studies that have used this scale? I think I can maybe discuss this as sort of like a broad theme in this literature that I hope people have new, renewed sort of caution about. There is a number of studies that sort of pathologize people at the high end of the racial resentment scale in a way that is sometimes like, I don't mean that those people don't exist, the pathological people, but is being sort of very course. It's jumping a little bit too um, quick to the reflex of, of kind of pathologizing uh, conservatives. And so um, this paper gives us some, some basis on which to say there's all kinds of biases in society. And this survey measure is a way to pick up some kind of racial bias. And for some people, it sort of sends them in a racially kind of progressive favoring directions. Other people, probably the opposite. And that opens up lots of discussions about what are the contexts in which those pressures come to bear more and less, and we need to take account of both of them and not so immediately take every time that there's a correlation between racial resentment and a political outcome, jump to the conclusion that racism explains that political outcome. Thanks so much, Tim. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Anthony. I appreciate it. So going back to the literature overview that Will so nicely uh, provided to us at the beginning of the podcast. If you just look at the correlation between the behaviors, the intent of behavior expressed in the surveys towards black candidates and the resentment survey, you get the correlation that the literature has found before. So the higher you score on this resentment scale, the worse, in some sense, you behave towards blacks. What they're showing is that actually what good or worse is, is very different than what the literature was uh, making us believe. Those who score very highly, so we would traditionally be suspicious a little bit about their racial attitudes, they actually do not exhibit any bias in favor of whites or against whites, in favor of blacks, against blacks. But those who score very little, very low on the resentment scale, so those would be the people that we say, hey, you know, you don't have racial prejudices, they actually seem to favor black people. Is that, is that the right interpretation of the data? That's the finding. And I think, I think all of the authors were probably surprised by that. And I'm sure lots of other people in the literature were surprised by this as well. And it's actually, I mean, it's interesting. Maybe we should come back to this affirmative action debate. It's interesting in light of these affirmative action cases, because you have, you have empirical evidence that on average, white Americans do discriminate against Asians. They don't systematically discriminate against black people. And here's, you know, and I hear the Supreme Court's being asked to, to consider a case where it looks like in college admissions, uh, admissions offices are discriminating against Asians, but in favor of black people, which is exactly in line with the findings here in the study. So it seems like the Harvard admissions office and the kind of the, the, the white American population writ large is, is similar in that regard. It sure looks like when you say something like, and look, I mean, it makes some sense. If you come out and you're asked the question, it's really a matter of some people not trying hard enough. If blacks would only try harder, they would be just as well off as whites. And you hear that and you say, no way. Are you kidding me? Because I'm aware of the long history of racism in American politics and all the structural ways, the efforts of blacks are not rewarded, they're not attended to. If, if you are attentive to all of that, and then you are presented, that kind of person, and then is presented with two candidates who look all else equal, they look the same, you'd be more likely to say, I want to go with the black candidate. Why? Be, for, any, for any number of reasons, if, to offer a corrective to that long history of 
racial injustice to, you know, the, the, the experiment tries to hold constant their kind of skill levels in, in some sort of crude ways, but you be mu- more, might be more inclined to say in, in unexpressed ways, this candidate is going to bring more to the table. And I, I would prefer them to get behind that person. So in that sense, it's no great, su- the, su- the finding is no great surprise. I think when you sort of think it through, um, and yet it's not how um, scholars for a very long time have interpreted the baseline correlation. So the survey was run relatively recently and, you know, we all lived through the election of Donald Trump and uh, John uh, Floyd murder. And it's sort of, it would be surprising if now you present people with this experiment, in, if they did not, if some of the people did not actually express favoritism towards blacks. Like we've been bombarded with with this message of your systemic racism, and and I think each of us or a lot of us want to feel like we want to contribute to uh, equality and so on. And one way to do so is you have two excellent candidates, and then you have one coming from this long underprivileged group, and you say, well, you know, how do I choose between them? Why don't I just tip the scale in favor of the black person? So, in some sense, I think the finding that we found this um, overall positive. Uh, bias in favor of black people in in this experiment, it should not be surprising. And now if I think about how people were using this questionnaire in the past, again, you know, I don't know, but I can envision how many years ago, actually, if you run this experiment, it would have come up differently. And if you run it again, 10 years from now, it might come up differently. So this is all to say that it seems like there's this robust correlation between the measure and some kind of behavior, and that's fine. But to what extent we are picking up something that we care about, which is the level of racism, I think that that's just very hard to figure out because I think it's really going to be dependent on when we run the survey, exactly what kind of questions we uh, we uh, we put in the survey, and uh, yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure this that these relationships have changed over time, and obviously we don't have direct evidence on that. But that part that part must be right. But it still seems it still seems interesting to say, okay, we you know we've been using the scale for a long time. Attitudes about race may have changed over time. Let's take a look and see if and see if the meaning of the scale has changed in recent years. And in in that light, I think the findings are pretty interesting. Of course, they could change again, but I think the findings are interesting. And I, I I'm not sure. I would just dismiss a level shift and say, oh, I, I just, all I really want to know is kind of that, that I've got some measure that's correlated with racial preference. I don't really care whether it's for or against a particular group. We all like if you, if you think about it, we all we care. We obviously care about to the extent that there is kind of discrimination in the labor force or in other, you know, in, in other in other contexts. We really want to know. Is it because people are actually discriminating on the basis of race or is it or, you know, in which and if so, which direction is it going? I think we care a lot about that. It, there is there's, there's a lot at stake. I agree in that there's a lot at stake. Take the person who scores really low on the scale again, a racially liberal person who who recognizes the enduring significance of race in American politics and says, I, I steadfastly reject this claim that's part of the racial resentment scale. Right now, what they show is that that person at the margin is more willing to favor a black candidate over a white job candidate. It, it may well be that 20, 30 years ago, that person was left merely indifferent between the two, right? In that sense, that would might signify, and that the person who scores very high on that scale was in a position, they were in a position where they would outwardly discriminate against the black candidate. So that's that's a possibility. We don't know, but that's a possibility. 
Right now we're in a world in which we see at one end a, a willingness to favor and at the other end um, indifference. That is, I don't, I don't recognize that past history. I do see blacks as perfectly capable of doing just as well as whites if only they would work harder according to the scale. The person who affirms that kind of statement and that leaves them in, in, a, in a state of indifference. I mean, that's what the data show, a state of indifference in choosing between um, either a, a black or a white job candidate or a candidate for higher office. I absolutely agree with you that I think it's important to see whether, you know, it's important to, to understand the sources of racism and whether there is racism in the labor market and so on. And in that sense, given that the literature interpreted this correlation that they were finding as, as evidence of racism, this is a great contribution. <laughs> but what I'm questioning is whether we can use the scale and look at the levels to measure racism. So how, so, so how, so how did they do that? So, so they basically showed people at two candidates and with different characteristics. And they were trying to see if on average people favored blacks uh, over whites. And this is a no-stake uh, survey. I sort of know that racism, racism is salient. Now I turn on TV and people talk about racism. We are just coming out of this huge racial reckoning. Recon how do you say that? Reckoning. You know what? Reckoning, exactly. And of course, it's on my mind. And I see these two excellent candidates and I'm like, of course, I'm going to go with the black candidate. So I would question whether we should be actually using the survey to figure out the level of races, because I think it might be really very much context dependent how we run the experiment and exactly when we run the experiment. And I doubt that all those people uh, who scored a very low on this uh, on the scale when the stakes, if the stakes were really high, that they would behave exactly how they behave in the experiment. I think it's a fair concern. And I think he acknowledged that it's a reasonable concern, that you might worry that people are thinking, you know, they're, they're thinking, what is the survey going to be used for? I don't want to look like I'm a racist. So, you know, I'm worried that this is a study about race. I want to make sure I, I look like a good, progressive, enlightened person. And maybe that just causes a level shift. And everyone kind of everyone across the board favors black job candidates in the survey more than they otherwise would in a real world, say, decision where you're actually on a hiring committee. To their credit, they did do a bunch of things to try to minimize that as much as possible. Nobody knew the study was about race. There was a multi-wave survey. So the racial resentment scale was asked in the first wave. And then the second wave was was not, you know, was they, they, the subjects had no way of knowing that those two were even connected to each other. And you're presented with these job candidates and there are lots of features of the job candidates, not just race. So, um, you, you know, you have lots of other things you can be selecting on other than just race. So they tried as best as they could to kind of minimize that. But I still think I still think that's a fair concern. And I think that's probably a fair concern for any effort to measure race or any kind of, you know, because I think this is a, this is a highly sensitive issue and nobody wants to look like a racist study. I want to go a little bit further. So it's not that I'm worried about this desirability bias, because I think you're right, Anthony, that they try to really uh, address the, that as much as you can in an experiment. I think I'm worried a little bit more about how I want to be perceived and how I want to feel about myself. So I'm sort of trying to fool myself, but making those decisions. So it's not me vis-a-vis -vis the, the researchers, but me vis-a-vis -vis me. But also, even if they found that on average there is uh, anti-black bias, that on average the white candidate wins, Again, I would be reluctant to take it as a very strong proof of racism in the society because this is a very contrived experiment. And perhaps if I see black at the top, and I all like, I have a lot of you know I have a lot of features that those people share, but not so many. I have I think like eight different characteristics, and one of them is race. And maybe I have some sort of 
correlations in mind. This is the you know this is city manager. This is a political position, and maybe I correlate you know race with certain political positions that I don't like. Maybe more redistribution and I don't like it or whatever whatever it is like even if the survey found that people express bias and uh, against minorities that would not necessarily tell me that this bias is due to some deep-seated racism so uh, this is all to express skepticism about using this <laughs> measure to to just try to figure out you know how racist we are I think one one quick response to one of the things you said which is if if this is about kind of how you perceive yourself Maybe people do have some deep down hidden racism, but they don't want to think of it that way. And so they answer, they, ch they change how they answer these questions. I don't know if that's true, but let's just suppose that is. That might also change how they behave, say, in real hiring scenarios as well. Like you might think that same mechanism would apply in the real world. And then, and then the question is, am I trying to learn about how you would behave in a real hiring situation? Or am I trying to learn about, you know, deep down what's in your hidden soul that you never show the world? And this reminds me of we've, other debates we've had on this podcast before. And you could, I can I could see a case for either one, but I think maybe they have a stronger case for saying what we're learning about is how people would make a hiring decision, not like, un, you know, deep down, what are their true, what are their true, you know, animal instincts and so forth. But I mean, again, I mean, I, I don't I don't disagree too strongly with you. But I, the, the, the one last thing I would push back on is suppose they had found the opposite, although although you say you would be skeptical, the, the academic field writ large would not be this. You know, this would be this would be this would be held up as yet another example of how racist people are and a huge problem that we have and we have to fix it. And there will be all kinds of policy remedies to solve the problem. And, and I suspect this, these results will not be held up in that same light because the results didn't go in that preferred direction. But, but I think it's, it, it's, worth, it's worth thinking about because evidence, evidence in, in one direction is often subject to more scrutiny than evidence in another direction. And it seems like they've done everything they can to try, you know, within reason to try to mitigate these concerns. But I agree. I mean, you'd want to see other evidence as well. Hey, if you're getting a lot out of the research that we discuss on this show, there's another University of Chicago podcast network show that you should check out. It's called Big Brains. Big Brains brings you the engaging stories behind the pioneering research and pivotal breakthroughs reshaping our world. Change how you see the world through research and keep up with the latest academic thinking with Big Brains, part of the University of Chicago podcast network. Can, can I lift up another finding that's interesting that they put forward? Because we've been talking about what the average effect looks like. But when you distinguish liberals and conservatives, the effects are very different. Among conservatives, it doesn't matter how you score on the racial resentment scale. You appear indifferent between the black and the white candidate for city manager. It's just a flat line all the way across sitting right at that point of indifference. Where the action lies that's driving that average effect is a noticeably differential effect among liberals. That is, among liberals who score very low on the um, uh, racial resentment scale, they are much more inclined to favor the black candidate. And among liberals who score very high on the racial resentment scale, we do see evidence of them systematically favoring the white candidate. Here again, what do you make of this? And are you, were you surprised by this? Can I offer Can I offer one potential explanation for this? Well, you can tell me if you disagree. Will, you brought up earlier this debate about whether or not the racial resentment scale 
is it really picking up you know views about race or is it picking up something about ideology because a lot of the questions you could just be someone who really believes in individualism for example and you would you would answer a lot of these questions in the high racial resentment way but it could just be because you're kind of a traditional small c conservative i don't again i mean you know, and i know this is like this is a very contentious issue among people who study this question but suppose the story like that is right then the conservatives are going to answer the racial resentment scale. I mean, I mean, we don't see the underlying distribution here. They're, they tend to be high on the racial resentment scale. Most of them are pretty high. And the conservatives are going to answer kind of honestly. And most of them end up high. And maybe some of them end up in the middle. And may, so maybe that's not that correlated with actual views about race and racial discrimination and so forth. But among liberals, um, maybe they are aware that these questions are somewhat politicized or they have a they have a political slant to them and they know that you know if you're if you're if you're a liberal who really doesn't want to be seen as racist or you maybe you 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 really you actively prefer black job candidates for for all the reasons you said you, you really want to make sure you answer those in the low racial resentment way because you you kind of know the answers to those questions that make you look bad and maybe you know so so it could be that among liberals they're aware that like these are racial questions and among conservatives they're just like oh these are ideology ideology questions and you end up getting a different result among those two. So the social desirability uniquely applies to one group, but not to the other, which is what's then driving the findings. I mean, there's another, we could put aside social desirability aside and say, no, what's happening is that for one group, they score high on it, but their views are simply neither here nor there because they're against any racial preferences. Why? Because they're conservative. That's what it means to be conservative. I don't want to favor one group or another all the way through. Whereas if you're liberal, you see race as a salient and meaningful category to actively consider. And so you see it actively considered among racial liberals who score low on the, on the racial resentment scale, saying we need to hold up a group. And then when they, liberals score high on the racial conservative scale, they say, no, race is significant and we need, it should inform our views about candidates. But it's the bigotry that I'm channeling that's driving me to pr pick the white candidate. It is a strange person that says, I'm politically liberal, but, you know, but then they answer all those questions in the kind of racially conservative way, you know, black people should work harder for themselves and not take any handouts and so forth. You know, part of what it means to be a liberal is you kind of think that the world isn't completely fair and you generally believe in some, some level of redistribution and so forth. So it's strange to say that, but then say, but for black people, they should, they should pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. And so maybe those really are racist people. Maybe those people are people who, you know, they are people who generally believe in redistribution, but not for black people. And that is a racist person. And we've identified them. There aren't very many of them, but there are, and, among the conservatives, maybe there are a few of them among the conservatives too, but there's no, we haven't cleanly identified them because they can answer in the conservative way by being genuinely conservative. Some of them are really racist. We're getting a mix of them. We get a null result over there. Do you see what I'm saying? Just to, you know, just not to label those uh, few dots that I read uh, on our graphs, racist. Again, it's very hard to draw any conclusions about racism. So what if those people who score low on this resentment scale who actually give preferences to blacks what if those are people who are not necessarily not racist they are just doing that for virtue signaling or they they, they are have patronizing approach they're like no black people can never bring themselves up uh by themselves we have to help them and you know i'm sure that most of those people actually truly believe that they have to fight some systemic racism, but some of them might not. And some of them, so I feel like 
it's really it's really guessing a lot of things what's going on in people's head based on those numbers in order to uh, decide who's racist who is not and i think that's really not warranted at all what's your what's your while you're on a roll viola what's your what's your bottom line i have two bottom lines so uh on the one hand i really like this paper because it adds a really important counterpoint to the literature that will outlined in the introduction and i think it does have pretty convincing evidence that this resentment scale measures conservatism at least for conservatives and not racism but you know on the other hand i really do not like this idea of trying to develop measures to measure racism i think this is a fraud exercise and it's going to always lead to very confusing results. And, and it's sort of, I don't see the upside of that. I guess I come out a little bit different on the latter point in that I, I think it is important for us to take stock of, as best we're able to, the kind of level and impacts of changing forms of racism for different groups. I kind of like this as an exercise. Um, and to do so in a way that uh, is transparent and I'm open, I guess, to the idea that, that surveys have important things to say about this. This paper strikes me as a really important corrective to a literature that routinely interprets a correlation as direct evidence of the significance of racism and encourages us to think more capaciously about what the relevant source of variation is. And boy, it looks like, particularly among liberals, it's as much about, if not more, about favoring one group as favoring blacks as it is, as, as, as it is against disfavoring them. But I'm, I'm also, I, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm with you, Viola, in the, in, in the sense that I'd want to see a lot of different kinds of evidence about actual choices made in the actual political world and decisions that are actually being made about who to hire and fire. And, you know, on this podcast, we've talked a lot about the, the noise and bias that creeps into survey research that has to play a, a crucial role in what's going on here. And, and to limit our analyses, to say that this in any way represents the final word on these important topics would be to grossly overstate the significance of the paper. And yet, against the backdrop of a long, long literature, I really like this, this intervention. So I, I really like the paper as well. And I, I think I'm going to disagree with both of you a little bit in that, I mean, I, I, I well, agree, of course, in the part that, that says this is a very hard thing to do, to actually measure, measure, measure racial disfavoring or favoring is a very hard thing to do. But I think it's a worthwhile thing to do because one, we, we care about the answers. We want to know uh, to what extent is there discrimination for or against different groups and, and what are the magnitudes and what are the signs and where is it stronger and so forth. So this isn't the last word by any means, but I think we should be, we should be doing this. Um, and I think if, if we don't do this rigorously, we just leave it to uh, people who don't have any data or evidence to just say whatever the answers are and assert them very confidently. So, so I'm glad somebody is doing this. I'll also say that, of course, we should worry about these kinds of the, the kind of noise and biases that arise with surveys in general. But I think this particular approach is probably a lot better than the alternatives. I mean, the, if the alternative is the racial resentment scale, where we're going to ask someone a question which is highly politicized, uh, also is, is confounded by ideology, that seems like a huge problem. 
Whereas if we if we ask you know if we if we do these conjuring experiments, maybe we're going to do a better job of listing people's people's true underlying levels of discrimination. So so I applaud the paper for trying for trying to do that. Of course, it's not the last word. Of course, there should be more studies like this. But uh, but I think I think this is a really innovative paper, and the findings are really striking, and it changes the way we think about this literature. It changes the way we think about the racial resentment scale, of course. But it might also set a, set an example for other researchers to come along and improve it and do a better job of, of studying these questions. So. So it's a great paper, and I'm, and I'm glad we discussed it. Um, and I and I applaud the authors for working in a very contentious, difficult, like methodologically challenging, and and also and also just controversial topic, but but making progress in a in a in a reasonable way. Thanks for listening to Not Another Politics Podcast. Our show is a podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy and is produced by Matt Hodup. Thanks for listening.